Hi, I'm Gus Warland, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shaw & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and we chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Kath Cashel. Kath is a very special woman. She has had more obstacles thrown at her in her life so far than any of us could ever imagine overcoming. Kath's life is one of inspiration, resilience, and utter strength. She is humble, grounded, and has a bit of a potty mouth. I absolutely love her. And as for all of these podcasts, Sean Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of the choice of each of our guests. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into our chat with Cash Cashel. Kath, we are sitting here in your humble abode, <laughs> looking out over the Pacific Ocean. How Welcome. Are you? <laughs> it's a big place you got here. What it lacks in size and makes up for in ambiance, hopefully. It does. Yeah. It's very homely. Yeah, thank and you. It's good to see you. Yeah, thank you. You too. I want to talk to you about you sort of going all the way back because I know your story, but I want to get your story for our listeners out around, you know, your journey and the kindness factory and so forth. But Kath, where were you born? What was your family makeup? So born in Sydney, but grew up or spent the first part of my, my childhood in a regional town called Finlay. So it's in the, it's still in New South Wales, but on the regional border of New South Wales and Victoria. So 15 minutes from that border. Not a very big place or an advanced place by any stretch, but I love it. I love going back there. I'll be going back there this week, actually, which would be fantastic. And it just always feels like home. So yeah, really proud to, to represent Finlay as best as I can wherever I go, really. But yeah. three older brothers... So youngest, only girl, which was fantastic. I don't know any different, but wouldn't have had it any other way. They're, they're all awesome blokes. And I guess they sort of instilled in me, I guess, a lot of grit because I had to have it even just to survive at a dinner table to get enough food with, <laughs> with three big burly guys like that. So had a really wonderful childhood. I, I can't, can't complain about it whatsoever. Just was always out and about, really active. Lucky enough to be just prior to sort of, you know, technology or the World Wide Web taking over. So still have that kind of, great country values kind of living in me which is awesome mum and dad again really wonderful people dad's a, an ex-cop so i was in the police force for 40 years and he's born and bred in finley mum was from a sort of like a neighboring town i guess called lockhart she isn't too far away she'd moved to sydney throughout her youth kind of years and things like that and they actually met in sydney just really decent people as i said dad was a cop mum was early childhood educator so worked with kids all that kind of stuff but just a really working class family nothing too extravagant what we lacked in, you know, I guess financial privilege, we, we made up for in love. So just, yeah, always got each other's back and, and really loyal family. So love them, love them all to death. Yeah, I've met one of your brothers and he's just a big cuddly bear. And, you know, you can just tell that there's that sort of, I don't know, the, that feeling, that energy between you, which is really a lot of love and a lot of respect and stuff. Which yeah, is lovely. he's one of my best mates. So, yeah. yeah. He asked me to be his best man at his wedding, which was a little bit funny, but. Wow. Um, so I asked if he'd be my maid of honour when I get married, if that ever happens. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. That's already sorted. Well, when Jacko and Deb got married, Deb had one girlfriend, but her next two best friends were boys. So they wore the same gear as us on the other side. But I got to walk down with the maid of honour, who is this magnificent actress from America. But my, our other two mates, his brothers, had to walk down with the boys, <laughs> down there, which was back in Love the day that. was probably, you know, a little ahead of schedule. But I'm glad that we could do it and awesome. everyone had a good laugh and it was it was good. Yeah. For you growing up in a country town, 
your love of sport and in particular cricket came into play and you were able to sort of play with the boys so you knew that you were quite good. Is that where your love and your passion for then playing for higher representative honours came from? Yeah, um, I think it more come just from a place of, of love. I Cricket was my first love. I, oh my God, I still love it. I watch – it's on my TV religiously. My best mate still plays um, sort of in and out of the Australian team. Love all the boys, got to work with them, all that kind of stuff. But at a young age, I'm not really sure. A lot of people say, why cricket? You know, because, I mean, it's such a polarising sport. Well, you're the cricket tragic, so I'm yeah. sure you're going to agree with a lot of what I've said. Yeah. It's a team sport, right? So you've got, you know, 10 others around you at any given time and – it's like your second family, but it also, I guess, is a very individual sport. Like, you know, it's, it could be on one person to hit the winning runs, for example, or to take that catch or bowl that ball that gets the wicket and all that kind of stuff. And I think just being around people, for me, sort of in a physical sense, has always been really important, connection. And I think that's what I love so much about cricket and coming where I come from, cricket was obviously a big draw card. And so, yeah, I didn't really see it any different back then, you know, because my brothers all played not very well. I was in the backyard playing with them and I guess being a male dominated sport, they were, I guess their technical abilities were probably better than mine, but then I sort of leveled up and I didn't really see myself as extra talented really until I probably moved to Sydney when it was more, because I was playing with the boys. And so it was like just an even playing field at so that point. So there's no just straight girls team? Never, no, not back then. And so, yeah, I had to refine my craft with the boys and, and all that kind of stuff who just took me under their wing and never see, saw me as any different. Granted, I was a, a tomboy for sure, but <laughs> yeah. And then come to play in Sydney and, and it was suddenly, you know, you're in girls' competitions and women's competitions and, you know, I was like, oh, okay, well, these are the like-for-like like kind of people that I need to match up against. And so, again, not the, the most technically gifted player, but I just loved it so much that I was willing to, to go the extra mile or to train harder and to do all those sorts of things. And so I knew very early that, if I wanted to progress to the to that you know elite level, that I would have to do something you know extra because you know I wasn't Elise Perry or Elisa Healy or anyone like that. It didn't come naturally to me like that. I sort of finished high school and went on did a university degree, fast tracked that, and then I got my first professional contract in Middlesex actually. So based out of Lords in the UK. Not a bad spot to play your cricket. No, I'll never forget getting there. Like get off the plane, you got twenty four hours in a you know economy seat, so you're a bit stiff and <laughs> and all of that. I've never really had jet lag, and within four hours of landing in the country, I was at Lords, and my eyes just oh. opened wide, and I was like, where am I? Like, and I was like, well, I'm at the home of cricket. Yeah, women's sport as we talk about it in 2021, you know, are leading the way in terms of football, in terms of Olympics, more women winning medals than men. And the Australian women's cricket team is the best in the world and also the most loved. You know, had all those ratings out the other day. What team do you love the most? And that Australian women's cricket team is it. So you're back a few years. wasn't five, ten years ago, was it? How many years ago were you in Middlesex? It would have been 11 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So was cricket starting to gain some momentum then? Were you feeling like, hey, this could be a career? Yeah, it was. Um, It was very much on the brink, so it wasn't professionalised yet, but you could sort of sense that it was coming. So it was like if you just sort of stay in there a little bit longer. Because you certainly couldn't make a career or, you know, be living well enough with the financial reward that it was giving players at that point in time. So outside of a university degree, for me, it was a part-time job at the obvious Kingsgrove Sports under Harry all that kind of stuff as he gives everyone that life, like that lifeline. But 
I was also doing some PT work, so personal training, which formed part of my degree. So yeah, you had to sort of fit everything in and around it and you end up with this really busy lifestyle because if you're not studying or training or playing, you're working and you're sort of fitting all these scheduled things in. So you come back to Australia and you're like, okay, baggy blue time. Yeah, let's go. So um, <laughs> funny story, actually, I, uh, I, got, I got the phone call. I missed it from the selectors again. Like It wasn't like iPhones back then. It was like, you know, your Nokia whatever it was. And, you know, social media wasn't really that big and all that kind of stuff. And so I missed all these calls. And at the end of that trip, it was sort of September time. And I was, I'd had my, my flight booked and I realized that Oktoberfest started the week, <laughs> the last week in September. And I thought I can squeeze that in because my last game's here and I don't, I'm not due back. And I didn't know I'd been almost selected and all this kind of stuff. So I booked this trip to, to Germany with a couple of my friends from Middlesex and went over an experienced part of, of beer fest and actually nearly lost my opportunity before it was handed to me so went and did the whole Germany thing and they're like hang on why what are you doing we've just picked you in the squad like and I was like I didn't know and so nearly missed out on that but ended up uh (laughs) had a great time it was awesome it was really really fun but come back and and they were okay with that I think they they made me push a little bit harder in the last bit of the preseason because of it but that was okay basically I said yeah we're ready to go Adelaide Oval off you go you're picked here's your cap 221 and it was just a really cool moment for me because I'd spent so long I think I identified that was a dream from when I was about eight and I was 22 at the time so to spend that long dreaming about it and then to get it and then to actually perform on your debut like it's sort of yeah even now I'm sort of getting goosebumps and stuff and to have Mitzi there and family and all that kind of stuff watching it was just such a, a special moment to remember. So you have that magnificent debut things are going along nicely then the first hurdle that life throws at you comes at you can you tell us about that? Yeah, so not long after the debut, I'm, I'm four games into that career, held my spot, did all that kind of stuff and string a really good and decent performances, which I was really happy with. And I'd been fighting a bit of a an injury, which we didn't know too much about. And it's still sort of a really unknown territory, I guess, for a lot of people and specialists. But essentially about two games into, I guess, my, after my first game, I went and saw the physio because I was experiencing some some pain, sort of sciatic pain but also a bit of a numb toe in my left my left foot. And I didn't really know what it was all about. And I, I thought I actually thought it sounded a bit joke-like to try and explain that to a physio. And I don't know if it's still the same now, but there's zero privacy in team environments in a physio room. So there's just players everywhere getting treated and needles and stuff like that. I started explaining my presentations to the physio and, and everyone's just sort of started going silent, going, what do you mean you can't feel your left toe? And the look on her face was, you could just sense the alarm bells ringing. And obviously she knew, knows a lot more than I did about the body and all that kind of stuff and knew that the presentations of my symptoms were a bit more serious than what we would think they were. And so that prompted her to speak to the, the doctor, sports physician, and they went and scanned me up almost immediately for the back and because that would make sense to them and basically saw a, a hernia a disc in my spine so nothing too bad it was you know bad enough for them to warrant me saying look we don't think you should play it's a pretty bad herniated disc and rest is going to be your best friend and here I am going oh, I've just I've just made it like yeah, I don't apart from a numb toe I'm not really in that much pain so can I play or what you know are you gonna give me the chance or and they said well yeah we can give you the option it's 50 50 so you've got to decide but these are the risks that you you know you go in with so of course I said of yeah let's go let's (laughs) let's play so did and then it's not a regret that I have but it was I guess um, ultimately a choice that I made that impacted my future in in a really big way so I was I was fielding in cover in this next game and 
the ball got hit past me really quickly and it raced off to the boundary and didn't think anything of it, thought I'll just sort of, you know, jog on after it, conserve some energy, throw it back in. And as I twisted to the, to the left to t- turn and chase, the disc that had prolapsed had come out that quickly that the two vertebrae had nowhere to go and they cracked onto each other. Part of the bottom vertebrae cracked off and, and went straight into my spinal cord. So there I was at, you know, I guess the top of my game, the best I'd ever been playing in from a performance standpoint, the fittest I'd ever been. And I'm, I'm 23 at this point in time. Can't feel anything below my waist. Airlifted to the nearest hospital and just sort of so much confusion and head noise going on. Like I can't feel anything. I can't move my legs. Um, I, I really have no idea what this means for my future. So not, not only is this this dream that I've been dreaming of since such a young age just vanished, but am I ever going to walk again? And these are all the, the questions that I started to ask myself. And they said, whoa, 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 let's just get to the hospital and, and we'll figure it out. And it's a bit of a blur, the next little bit, as in I remember what happened, but not in any great or finite detail in that I just kept having surgeries, like all these surgeries, one after the other to try and rectify the problem. And after the fifth one, they actually just sort of said, look, mate, it, it's, it's just no no good. We just, we can't fix it. So to answer your question, yeah, the, the dream has gone and and life will be in a wheelchair and you're never going to get that feeling about back. So I was diagnosed with clinical paralysis, so paraplegia. And that was the news that I was confronted with, apart from one doctor who, who believed that he, he might have a solution for me. And, and back then, this is sort of 11, 10 years ago, this surgery wasn't, wasn't very big in Australia. They'd done it a lot in the US. There was one surgeon who was attempting to do them in Australia named Matthew Scott Young. And he sort of sent my case over to Matt in the Gold Coast. And he said, look, this is a, a young fit athlete. Here's the presentations, et cetera what do you think? And he said, we'll, we'll get it here and, and we'll give it a go. So it's called a total disc replacement and different to very historical vinyl uh, surgeries whereby they normally cut through the back and do all that kind of stuff. This one they actually cut through your stomach and all sorts of things happen, uh, less scar tissue to go through all that kind of stuff. But they almost encase the, the, the damaged vertebrae with titanium reinforcement and they put like a ball and socket kind of joint system where your disc normally would have been. And the idea is that you get a lot more mobility and movement through the spine. Otherwise, the the historical surgeries for that kind of injury is like a fusion and you end up with like this cage system in your back and you're very rigid for the rest of your life. So I said, you know, one, it might give you more mobility and two, it might actually resolve some of the, obviously the numbness that you're experiencing and all that kind of stuff. So I took the chance as if you wouldn't. So off to the Gold Coast I went. But they're not exactly the words you want to hear, like, I'll have a crack or let's give it a go or, you know, like they couldn't have given you an awful amount of confidence or did you just think the other option is just not a, just no way you can think about it? I think like all things in life, right? Like if you've got a, a chance at something versus zero chance, you're going to, in my opinion, you're going to take it, aren't you? Gussie, I don't know if I'm naive or, or not, you know me well now, but I actually thought I was going to get back on the cricket park. Even with all of that ahead of me, I, I, I thought the dream's not up, I'm, I'll get there. Like, it, like I just had this... It wasn't a confidence or a, an arrogance or anything like that. I think I just believed that something would turn my favour and, and it'd be okay. So, yeah, when they said, this is your chance, I said, let's go. Like, So, Dad, come with me, bless him. And, yeah, off to the Gold Coast we went. It was at Narang Hospital. Almost got in immediately, which was great, and deemed a success from the get-go. So, they said, you know, the symptoms that I was experiencing in my legs and all that 
would take a while to resolve, but from a, I guess, a body perspective, everything was in the right place. So it was at the best possible chance, all that kind of stuff. So how long had you been in a wheelchair from sort of the moment that you broke your back on the cricket field to getting pushed into that um, Gold Coast hospital? Yeah, it was about six weeks. So go from that to Narang and then you have the surgery. But with this one, as I said, you, you they cut through the stomach. And so all of you to access the spine through a stomach, you got to push, you know, all of the vital organs aside. And so there's a whole lot of structural things going on and you're, not, you're actually in traction for two weeks post that surgery. So no movement, all that kind of stuff. And that's really when all the head noise really starts to creep in because I can't move, I can't really do anything. Even reading's quite difficult because you're in that one position and all that kind of stuff. But you've you got all those sort of drugs going through your system and, and sedatives and stuff like that that keep you quite still. But there's a really weird and tough two weeks to just be doing nothing and to be thinking you know was this worth it like I'm, I'm still in a lot of pain I don't even know if my organs are working properly will I take the steps I still can't feel anything and every day you go through that process and it's just like this just continuous sort of thought pattern but you know two weeks later I, I got out of bed and I did take my steps I couldn't feel anything uh, I only took two steps that day and it was with about four support staff underneath me and <laughs> yeah. holding me up and and guiding me through it but I took him and so for me that was everything was all worth it at that moment uh, when I took those steps and you know, the next day I took four and the day after that I took eight. And, and you're feeling everything? Like you're like... Nah, no feeling. Okay. Um, that was the last thing to sort of start to come back. So yeah, spent a couple of weeks longer in that hospital and then a little bit of rehab in the Gold Coast until basically my, my stomach, where they cut through and made the incision, had healed well enough for me to then go back to Sydney, family, friends and be around the love and all that kind of stuff to continue the process here from Sydney. So, you know, when I landed back in Sydney after getting it all clear to fly again, I'd started to, to regain feeling in my right leg, um, which was fantastic. And I was actually walking with, you know, the Canadian crutches, you, the ones that wrap around your forearm. So I was walking with them. So I was still able to get around and be independent to a, a certain extent. And I was around like my teammates again, which was fantastic because, you know, they were really supportive of me mm. and my recovery and all that, like still not, not training with them. Them, but like just around them yeah. which was which was great so it was you know fantastic and, and and then again another sort of hurdle come not too long after that I uh, was continuing the process here as an outpatient in rehab and woke up one morning you know you like sort of sat down too long coffee table so like we are now I guess or watching too much Netflix or in the <laughs> office whatever yeah. it is that you're doing and your arms are bent and they go numb because they've been bent too long and the blood's restricted it was a little bit like that but my entire left leg and it had started to come good and all that kind of stuff so I woke up and I just thought it was like, you know, four in the morning. I thought I must have slept on it really funnily or in a strange position. I'll try and move myself in the bed to, to see if it comes good. And a couple of minutes later, it hadn't. So I flick on my, my bedside table light. Uh, I look under the covers of my bed and, and my entire left leg was just blue, like a, a bruised sort of colour. I thought, whoa, uh, it's not normal. So I couldn't move it and it had gone completely dead again. And that really worried me. So I pick up my left leg with my hands and I, I put it to the side of my bed and I went to take a step and, and just face planted onto the floor. I thought, okay, I'm in a bit of strife here. I crawled myself into the bathroom and I realised that it was there that when I was there that I had no idea if I was actually using the bathroom. So my, my bladder and my bowel had started to shut down. And I remember the surgeons all warned me. They said, if that ever happens with a spinal cord injury like yours, if bladder and bowel start to shut down, that's life-threatening. You need to get straight to an emergency room. So I didn't muck around and I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn little creature when I, when I want to be. I had flatmates at the time, but I crawled myself out past their rooms and into my car, which is automatic because my right leg was working. 
I you decided did, didn't to not ask for help. It was four in the morning, and all I thought was, what an inconvenience to be woken up. Oh my at four goodness! In the morning. What did they tell? You know, what you did they like, say to you when, yeah, yeah. when you get, explained that to them? Still get lots of like gripe for that but got myself into the car and with the auto and my right leg working I start driving myself because I was supposed to be in rehab that morning for a routine sort of session and on the way there I called my doctor and he picicked up and I explained the situation to him and we're supposed so to he didn't mind waking your doctor up and just thought your flat he gets paid for it right? yeah. so I didn't want to do the extra laundry that week um, <laughs> but no my doctor sort of says to me look mate bypass rehab this is really serious you need to get straight to the hospital I'll meet you at RPA Royal Prince Alfred so I said okay so drove myself there and you know park myself in the emergency bay and get myself out of the car and start crawling into the emergency ward and they just started looking at me and I said oh look you know ma'am what on earth are you doing and I said look here's what the last six months of my life have looked like and this is how I woke up this morning and they said okay and they put me into a chair and pushed me to the nearest consult room and I get in there and they just start you know, very hurriedly pinning up my leg and, and measuring it and doing all these sorts of tests and readings and stuff like that. And I didn't really know what was going on. I just sort of went along with the process, but there was a, a lot of testing, uh, a lot of rigorous testing being done. And, and it was in one of those rooms with the glass all the way around it. I can see out, they can see in all that kind of stuff. And I'm just sort of sat on that bed and trying to pass the time and, and not but get too worried just yet. And about a half a day's worth of testing like they're all outside that room and I can I can see them all talking about me and like they could obviously see in and they were looking at me as they were talking amongst themselves and I was trying to lip read what they yeah. were saying because I was like what, what could they be talking about why don't they just come in and, and have the conversation in here because I'm here and every time they'd catch my eyes looking at them they'd look away and mm. I thought oh my god I'm in a lot of strife like I'd, if they can't maintain eye contact with me right now I'm, I, I don't think they're going to deliver much good news and one doctor walks in, my doctor, I'll never ever forget what he said. It was it was simply this. It was, Kath, I'm, I'm afraid the news is not great. We're going to amputate your leg. And I just went, whoa. And I, it was shocking to hear, uh, not because, you know, there's anything wrong with having a disability. I, I live with one now. It's, it's, it's not anything to be ashamed about. More so, no one ever warned me that that was something that I would face into, even though I had the spinal cord injuries and stuff like that. It just wasn't something that was on my radar and... I actually said, can I, can I call someone? Uh, I'm feeling a bit vulnerable and, and, and sad right now. And they said, of course, we're surprised you haven't. So I called Grant, who you've met, my brother, one of my best friends. And I said, can you come in? They're, I think they're going to amputate my leg. So he starts legging it towards the hospital and he gets there. And the funny part about this is at the time, he was actually a butcher, which I found really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, which joint will they? Yeah. Which, yeah. You brought your own tool. <laughs> well, that's the way to get round it, isn't it? Yeah, Make a laugh. Had to have a laugh. I was yeah. like, because he was in his butcher's gear as well. And <laughs> yeah, it was just really funny to me. I was like, this is really, and he's like, can you stop? And I was like, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so he starts just, you know, I mean, in, in all things in life, regardless of if it's, you know, your leg getting cut off or whatever it is, like in adversities, I think, and while I've got you so much, it's just people having your back. It, it's so important. And he had mine and he started asking the questions that I didn't have the foresight to ask because I was in this struggle, right? Like yeah. of shock and whatever. And he's like, well, explain it to us. What, what's going on? And they said, well, we can't figure it out. We've done all the testing we can think to do. But to paint a picture for you, anyone with normal healthy legs, depending on if they're sitting, walking, running, crawling, whatever it is they're doing, they've got a, a blood pressure reading between 90 and 100%. Anything below 20% is dire and anything below 10% is dead. And I said, okay, well, where am I? And they said, you're at seven. I said, whoa, okay. And I said, that's why it's turned blue and you can't use it. It's really floppy. And I said, okay, well, can we fix it? What can we do? Like, don't just cut it. Like, let's come up with a plan. Give me a shot. And they said, okay, it is fluctuating between 7 and 14%. I 
I said, okay. And they said, what that represents to us is that it's a blood flow issue. We can't figure out why, but we think exercise could help. So there I am going, well, I'm an athlete. I don't know yeah, how to you do, can that. do that. Yeah, so give me a crack. And so they said, okay, you need to go to hospital or rehab every day to have it tested. And if it drops below 10 again, it's gone on the spot. We'll give you two weeks to get it back up. Need you to take this really seriously. I said, of course, I can do this. Like, it's, yeah. it's all good. So the next two weeks, I, you know, I get up at four o'clock, uh, have a bit of brekkie, go to rehab or hospital, have it tested, use the help of the physios or the practitioners there to get it moving. And to paint a picture, I was, you know, on those walking aids again and, and my left leg would literally drag about a half a metre behind me. So all my shoes get worn down and scuffed from the, the dragging behind it and I'm hopping on the one good leg, the right one. And I'd go back home and I'd enlisted the help of a PT. She was helping me get it moving, all that kind of stuff at a local gym. I'd go home, have lunch, go back to the gym and, you know, friends or family knew about my struggle. That helped me get it, get it moving there. And obviously really stressful time and emotional time. Wasn't sleeping at all, really. I had a 24-hour access pass to the Sydney Cricket Ground as a contracted athlete and I'd go there all hours a day, sort of, you know, two, three, four in the morning and the security guards would notice the lights on and rather than kicking me out, they'd ask what, what was going on and I explained my struggle and as I said, rather than kicking me out, they, they would actually help me. They'd, they'd get, you know, electrical tape, one of them, Bobby, and he would strap my left leg into a spin bike or a cross trainer go back to his post, come back 40 minutes later, unstrap me, put me into the next machine. So he's helping in the only way that he knew he could. But it was the first time in my life that I really noticed the power of kindness, like what one person could do for another person when they needed it and how much that can lift a person's or boost a person's morale and the struggle that they're in. And it, it meant everything to me. Like, it, yeah, those small things that you can do for a person, even when they're not in a struggle. Like imagine if we just operated with kindness wherever we went, what it would do for the world and everyone's well-being and how much resilience we have and all that kind of stuff. So those are the moments, I guess, throughout these struggles that really started to stand out to me and accumulate to represent kindness and what it looked like to me and what it meant to me as well. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shaw and Partners Financial Services. Sure and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Sure and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at sureandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Sure and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. So, Kath, during that couple of weeks, were you getting a like a reading from anyone saying, oh, you know, you have been holding it in the teens now, it hasn't dropped down under 10? Like, because you're an athlete, where's the scoreboard for you to keep going? Yeah, no, so every day I'd, I'd go in and I'd have to get it read. And one, I remember one day it dropped to 10.5 and I was like, oh. mm. <laughs> like, I mean, I feel like if I breath, like breathed in the wrong way, it would like go down or something like that. Yeah. So it was a really weird kind of time. But Basically, I had to, one, it couldn't drop below 10, but two, within that two-week deadline, I had to get it above 20, and it never went above 17. So I was like, well, I just how do I, how do, I do this? I'm going so hard. I've got zero in the tank. I can't, but the energy, I just couldn't get it in quick enough. Like I yeah. dropped, like I was about 10 kilos lighter than I am now. Like it was just, yeah, it was just such a crazy time. And eventually, I guess it was to no avail or what we thought was no avail. So I got to that deadline. I was penciled in for this surgery on the Monday and we got to the, the Friday and they said, look, mate, it's, it hasn't worked. And I said, yeah, okay. I was like, I've still got two days left. And I'm like, come on. So I was like, okay. So my family being who they are, really charismatic, but very Australian people, I sort of delivered that news to them with a lot of tears and was surrounded by a lot of love. And they went, okay, well, let's 
last two days with your legs, both of them attached, we'll we'll make the most of it, even though I couldn't use it. And so on the Sunday, what they did very quickly was they invited all of my closest family and friends to mum and dad's house and we had a barbecue and legitimately, I wish I could share a photo with you right now, but there was an invitation that my brother put together and they labelled it the Kath's last day with two legs barbecue. (laughs) And there was all these legs on the invitation and all these people. Did you have a leg of lamb on the barbecue (laughs) and all that stuff? We probably did. It was very very leg themed. Um, But... It's funny, and it's and like people get when I tell them this story, they get quite shocked. They're like, oh my god, you can't do that! And I'm like, you can. Like, it's it's okay to laugh. Well, I found that humour can be a really great gateway to overcoming adversity. Sometimes, if we can't laugh at ourselves in the situation we're in, then who can we laugh at? And all that kind of stuff. And so, it became a very good coping <laughs> mechanism for me to to use humour in those ways and things like that. And my family have instilled that in me for a long time, and I think they will for a long time to come as well. So yeah, we're having the last day with two legs barbecue and. <laughs> as funny as it is, it's so funny. And my brother still, you know, has legendary status for that invitation. But it meant so much to me that all these people, like literally every single person that I cared about most on the planet was in at mum and dad's house. And all they cared about was me and that I'd be okay. It, it was just such an, an, incre- an incredible moment in my life to know that people have my back. And it's so important. I think people having belief in you and telling you that you're going to be okay, even then though you're not really sure if you are. Yeah. I think it's so special to have those villages that you talk about so often, Gussie. And yeah, so we have that. And I, I decided to stay at mum and dad's that night because I'm going to take me in for the surgery the next day. And my dad tells this story the best because I don't really remember a lot about it, but I was feeling pretty crook and woke up at about three in the morning and I collapsed unconsciously onto the floor. I made a thud on, on on the ground and woke dad up and he found me, picked me up, put me in the car, took me to St George Hospital nearest to their home and they did an entire body scan and, and found that I'd been bleeding internally from the stomach surgery that they cut, sorry, the spine surgery where they cut through oh. my stomach. So what happened was that the surgeon very accidentally and, and very slightly nicked the femoral artery that ran into my left leg. And because I had the spinal cord injury and a damaged nerve system from that, this limited supply of blood, like the blood had, the excess blood was storing in my stomach. I'd lost a little weight, so I didn't really notice anything. And the limited supply of blood in the rest of my body wouldn't carry into the damaged nerve system of my leg. And so that's why all of the symptoms started to make sense. So I'm raced off for emergency surgery and I wake up like three hours later and, you know, very groggy and all that kind of stuff. I start feeling around and, you know, is, is my leg attached? Like, and it was, which is great, still is for anyone listening. <laughs> and yeah, and they sort of said to me, I think they must have been able to see me sort of padding, you know, to see if my, my leg was attached. And I said, look, mate, you're not out of the woods. It, it is attached. We're pretty sure you won't be able to feel it when, when you start to wake up properly and stuff like that. But look, you've got a bit of a journey ahead of you. It's not really healthy. So it's very damaged. And for you to get it back to health and keep it attached, is your first battle and if you ever want the chance at walking again you should go to rehab so I didn't really know what that looked like I don't know you know rehab wasn't a big thing back then it still isn't really today there's still a lot of unknowns about rehab I thought it was like an American thing and all that kind of stuff and so I said okay what does I can do that like but what does it look like and they said well six to twelve months can't guarantee that you'll be walking again, but it's your best chance. So pack so up. So is your life. the chopping the leg off has been fixed in inverted commas because of the fall and going to another hospital and them being able to see it from a different way. Yeah. So I guess the fall Jeez. come from again just exhaustion would be one of them because I've been you know exercising excessively just to get the blood flowing. I'd lost a lot of weight and then just the actual presentation itself of the, the internal bleed 
was wreaking havoc in the rest of my body, which I guess the stress and the, the cortisol that was going on with me, I just didn't recognise anything that had been happening. Do you ever get so. upset with the original doctors up on the Gold Coast? And say, hey, perhaps if you hadn't done such a shit job? He's a well-renowned surgeon. People make mistakes. We're actually good friends now. So Has he ever apologised? Yeah, I think it's a a moment in his life that he wishes he could take back for sure. We did a, a half Ironman together not long ago or five years ago, something like that. And I catch up with him whenever I go to the Gold Coast and things okay. like that. So zero hard feelings, mistakes happen. None of us are perfect, all that kind of stuff. So okay. yeah, but certainly let him know about it for yeah, sure. Yeah, rightly so. <laughs> so Kath, this is all happening and you say, okay, well, I've got to go to rehab. All righty. Well, I'm going to get stuck in and I'm going to keep my legs and I'm going to be okay. So <laughs> is that basically what's going through your mind at the moment? Because just listening to your story, I'm always shaking my head and I'm always got my mouth open. I'm like, how did she just get back from another thing that kicked her in the guts? So I go to rehab, you know, spent the next couple of weeks in hospital, first and foremost, recovering from that surgery. And then they said, pack up your life, quit your job, rehab. Said, how okay. long for? Six to 12 months. No guarantees, but got to give it a go. Yep. Again, what other chance you got, right? <laughs> yeah. So go to rehab and I won't lie, rehab environments are really tough they're you know a downgrade from a hospital environment and just not conducive to thriving by any stretch and so my they didn't have room for me in the in the neuro ward that I should have been in so for my first two weeks I was in the the geriatric ward best friends were like 85 year olds Daisy who was one of my best mates from rehab just had all these great stories her name wasn't actually Daisy it was Iris I called her Daisy because she called me Alice <laughs> she, um, and we just had these great jokes and story times and stuff like that but I mean to be surrounded by the elderly when all you'd ever really cared about was cricket prior to that it was a big shock to the system and I learned a whole lot about perspective which I didn't really know about up until that point but yeah again like a, a week into that stay and that challenge of wrapping my head around you know that I'm not loving it here but I've got to be here for six to 12 months that's a hard realization and ultimately everyone's telling me I'm never going to walk again and I'm saying that I'm going to so I'm, I feel like I'm just constantly fighting against people to have better for me right so a week into my stay I just it hit me like a ton of bricks like I've broken my back I can't play cricket anymore I'm in rehab I don't like it I called my best mate and I said look you got to come pick me up she said, what do, you, what do you mean? You're there for a while, mate. I can't come pick you up. I'll come visit. And I said, no, I, I can't do this. If they cut my leg off, that's fine. I just can't do this. I, and I had tears running down my face and emotionally was just not in the greatest of places. And she just said to me with a lot of honesty and, and tough love, and I'll, I'll never forget it because this is true kindness and true mateship and a perfect example of why I got you for life. It means so much to me. She said, I, I won't come pick you up, Kath. I'll, I'll come and visit you. And you can call me at any hour of the day, I'll pick up and I'll walk this journey with you. But I know that the place that you need to be to get better right now is rehab. I've got your back, get it done. And I was like, okay. So I did. I just then went to this task of, of learning how to walk again, which is so hard. But like any challenge in life, you just break it into small steps and you get there. So you go from bed to chair, chair to frame, frame to stick, sticks to stick. You might crawl, take a couple of steps, all that kind of stuff. But when you're doing it, it's so hard. And so committed myself to this task, but then got quite distracted about a week into my stay when a, a patient, a fellow patient, ended up in rehab who I'd never met, who I thought was very attractive. Um, so he wasn't one of the uh, older gentlemen? No, 25 he was. <laughs> and here I am almost gushing. I'd never really, you know, I'd had like the, the high school flings and stuff like that, but never really had a boyfriend because cricket had, had absorbed my life up until that moment. And 
He it's enters your first rehab. love then, really? Well, yeah, he entered rehab. I didn't know he was going to be my first love. I just thought he was quite cute and <laughs> very quickly attached myself to the idea that I should be his rehab buddy and show him the ropes. And that is very selfless of you. Thank you. Put yourself it was out all about there kindness, like yeah. definitely, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just showed him where to get the good yogurt from and hydro rooms and which doctor we're better to deal with and all that kind of stuff. And very quickly and very much to my surprise, we fell in love, which is – Phenomenal and I've got the biggest smile on my face because uh, I, I look back on that period of my life with such fond, fond memories and such a really wonderful time in my life. I mean, to, to be in rehab, an environment that I've just explained is so tough and then to meet the love of your life. I remember about three months into our relationship being like, I am so grateful that I broke my back. Wow. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't have met him and then we don't fall in love and all that kind of stuff. So what made our time at rehab bearable was dreaming of a life that would be outside of rehab. So when we're better, when we can walk again, it, you know, we'll, we'll do all the wonderful things that we never thought were possible. So for us, our plans were four kids, three boys and a girl, just like my family, house in broad border on the Gold Coast, pet turtles, a dog, all that kind of stuff. Instead of long walks on the beach, like normal young kids in love do, we, we did wheelchair races in the corridor and <laughs> all that kind of stuff and, and made the environment as much ours as we could. And the, the experience became so bearable because we're like, if we can grind through this six to 12 month period, this is the life we're creating for ourselves when we get out of there. So that's okay. We can get through, anyone can get through six to 12 months. We can do it. So yeah, such a, a special and wonderful time in my life for sure. That experience was made all the much better because of Jim for sure. So what happens with Jim and you? Yeah, this is the the hardest thing that I'll, I'll ever go through in life and the hardest thing uh, that I find to talk about as well and happy to dive, dive deep with you, Gussie, for sure. But 12 months into our relationship, all these plans and, and dreams that we'd been dreaming, I was considered an outpatient. So, I mean, I'm, I visited morning uh, rehab three mornings a week and I'd go home or to work or whatever it was. But you were better. You were better. Much better. So I was still walking with, you know, AIDS and, you know, the, the Canadian crutches and stuff, but so much better. Um, and recoveries on track and all that kind of stuff. And because Jim had suffered his injuries, which were very similar to mine, much, you know, a little bit later than I had, he was a little bit further behind me. And so he had a day to go before he was t- to be considered that as well, an outpatient. And we'd just put the lease on the house, all that kind of stuff. So these dreams that we'd been dreaming were about to come true the very next day. And that night, so it was the 13th of November in 2012, he he took his own life. Suicide in, in the rehab environment. And it, uh, it, it just left me so crushed. Um, and beyond belief, like I, I just didn't know what recovery could ever look. I, I didn't think... And I'm starting to well up now. I didn't think I could ever be happy again. True happiness. You know, when you've experienced that that euphoric feeling of love that, you know, you're born to spend the rest of your life with this person. That's, I genuinely, I, I still believe it, um, that I was genuinely born to spend my life with that person. He was just everything to me. To lose him, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, first I lose this dream of playing cricket, which is all I ever thought I wanted to do. And then I lose the person who taught me that there was so much more to life than hitting the ball around a park. And I just lost myself I, emotionally, spiritually, everything just broke down. And at rock bottom, as hard of, of a place as that is, and I know that a lot of people have been there and all that kind of stuff. I think it was JK Rowling said it best. It was, you know, the only way to go when you're at rock bottom is up. So you can't get any lower. And I genuinely believe I, I couldn't ever be that ruined again. And as I said, I didn't know that I could ever be happy again. And, you know, do you ever really find it again? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that answer out nine years later, almost nine years later. But 
there are a few things that happened after his passing. The first is that I, I spent 10 months completely neglecting my own well-being. So any memory that I had of Jim, I'd push aside. You know, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was the one to find his body, all that kind of stuff. And so I went through this enormous struggle with that from nightmares and all that kind of stuff to, you know, beyond that from a mental health perspective. And because I was so distraught by his passing, I couldn't think about it in a way that I could tolerate because it just broke me every time I thought about him. So I just avoided memories, all that kind of stuff until I went back to rehab for a routine checkup and walked past his old room and just lost it. So sort of just completely, you know, broke down on the floor, had to have male nurses surrounding me, all that kind of stuff. And I remember getting sedated actually because I thought you need to really calm down and I couldn't, I couldn't regulate. And so they were like, okay, so get the jab and woke up from that and everyone, I think it was about three or four specialists, experts, nurses, whoever they were, sort of said to me, look, we just want you to know this is completely normal. What, you've been through some very abnormal things in life in a, at a very young age and your, your response to them is very normal. No one would be able to cope. And I, all I kept thinking in those moments of complete rawness was if this is normal and this is how I'm going to feel for the immediate future, for however long, then I don't want to be normal. Like Whatever you want to call me, call me that, but I, I can't feel this way because I was just completely lost and it didn't make any sense to me. And so I ended up flying to the Gold Coast where we were you know, due to start the life together and all that kind of stuff. And that's where Jim's mum lived. And I just went straight to her house and all I needed was a cuddle. I just needed a cuddle from someone who knew my pain or could see my pain for what it was. And we spent three weeks there just talking and just being and it was so refreshing and sat down at the coffee table in our home halfway through this period was just a piece of paper and a pen it must have been for a shopping list or something I don't know why I did it but I picked up the pen and I just started all these names started popping into my head of people who had helped me in my life so family and friends and doctors and physios and I just kept writing their names on this list I don't know why and then I don't know again what compelled me to do what I did next but I picked up my phone I started calling all of them simply to say thanks hi, it's me. I'm okay. Thanks for your concern and worry. I just want to say thanks for for being a part of my life, for showing up for me when I know it's been really hard to do because I've been through a lot of stuff. And I just want you to know that I'm really grateful to have you in my life. And their response was so beautiful. They were all like, you know, you don't have to do this. Like, of course we'll show up for you. You're amazing. Like all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's so reciprocal. And with that, I guess, you know, just telling them how much they meant to me and, and expressing gratitude, which, I didn't even know it was a thing back then, you know, uh, I just felt it and I decided to do it, but you don't have to wait for these types of experiences to happen to practice gratitude. Anyone can do it right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the best I've ever been in terms of happiness and next to my bed uh, on the bedside table is a, a notebook with a, with a pen and every night I write down three things that I'm grateful for and it takes me less than two minutes, but it reminds me that I had a great day or even if I didn't have such a great day, there were still three moments that were really great. And with that, I guess, calling all these people and understanding that I had a lot of support and a village and all that kind of stuff and how important they were to me, it really started to turn or flip, I guess, the dialogue that I had in my own head that everything's going to be okay. Not I've lost everything, but everything's going to be okay. And so, yeah, spent the next sort of couple of weeks there and then come back to Sydney had zero idea what my life would look like. Didn't know what it would be just because I was an athlete. Didn't mean I had to be one, but I was hell bent on trying to figure out what happiness or purpose or life could look like. So that was a, yeah, a, a pretty unreal moment to realise that. Were you angry with Jim? Were you obviously sh- shattered and sad and stuff, but were you angry? Like, do you, do you leave a note? Like, does he, do you know what you planned together? Like, what's he doing the night before? Yeah. <laughs> Anger's never been something that I've directed towards him. 
And I know everyone's experience with suicide is so different and it's so personal. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. I think it's so personal to the individual. I was angry at myself, Gussie, I realised after a long while actually, like what was I hanging on to and what was I holding on to and when I could really start to figure that out. And the reason I was angry with myself is why didn't I see it coming? Um, And I know that right now in a rational brain state and all that kind of stuff, you know, I I shouldn't have felt that way or not shouldn't have, but it was unfair of me to be angry at myself for that. But why didn't I see it coming? When he was smiling in the photos that we've got, is that a true smile or was he just doing it for the camera? Did that moment mean as much to him as what I thought it did to me? And all these sorts of thoughts were creeping around my head and what could I have done to prevent it? To, to prevent it. And so I took a lot of responsibility on, I think, and that's where the anger, it wasn't an outward expression ever. I, I'm, I'm not a you know, naturally very angry person by any stretch. It takes a, a lot to really get my blood boiling. But no, I just felt devastated for him that because he meant so much to me and I felt like I was sharing my struggles probably a bit more deeper than what he was with me. And, you know, I think that's a, a very big difference sometimes. And I, I know you're trying to change the dialogue about let's just talk about our problems, guys, like men and women alike. But it's, it's okay, men out there, to be vulnerable and to have that one person that you can share your struggles with and all that kind of stuff. So for Jim, he was a footy player. And I think a lot of his identity was formed around him being a footy player. And he'd obviously had a spinal cord injury similar to mine. Footy was never going to be on the cards for him and things like that. You never, and I know that you've lost someone close to suicide, you never get the answers that you search for. So you can ask as many questions as you want, but the only person that can truly answer those is the ones that have passed. And so the way that I tried to, I guess, process it in, a, in as much a respectful way as possible or that I could was that what Jim had gone on, for, I, had to, I had to allow myself to think that the moments that we had were as special to him as they were to me. I, I couldn't lose that and that was really important for me and I had to believe it. And so how do I rationalise his decision was that we all have personal things that go on inside of us that we don't share with anyone and that's just who we are. Some people share more or less than others and all that kind of stuff and ultimately his decision and his choice really had nothing to do with me and it's none of my business and that's what I sort of had to, you know, do I wish I could have done more or convinced him to choose otherwise? 100% definitely and I'll struggle with that for the rest of my life. It'll always be something that I feel and... I've you know, been to therapy and done all that kind of stuff and the soul searching, but I found peace in that he was struggling at a very deep level. Um, he had to have been to, to have made the choices that he did or the choice that he did. Um, and I just had to find comfort in that, that maybe his pain internally was too great to endure and I haven't experienced a pain like that or something like that. And that's how I had to sort of rationalise it for myself. But anger was not something that I felt towards him. I just felt so much care and compassion and and empathy for him in that that's ultimately the decision that he landed on. And I I just wish that it wasn't that way, maybe selfishly even, but yeah. Of course. Well, being one of your best mates now, I'd I'd love Jim to be right over there. Go go brother and have a beer and all that. And I'm sure that- You would have loved him. Yeah. I bet. So out of all these tragedies and all these heartaches and all these moments where life's kicking you in the guts- you decide to write a letter and ring up everyone that has helped you. But not only that, you don't just do that as a one-off. You decide to show kindness and start something called the Kindness Factory, where you come up with, oh, I want to get people all around the world doing nice, kind things to each other. Let's see if we can get a million of those. Yep. Now, last tally as of today was nearly 2.9 million acts of kindness that people have actually gone to a computer and said, I did that today, so I want to log that on the Kindness Factory target thing. All the other ones that don't get done, you know, because or they get done, but they just don't get logged. Yeah. 
you have started something with the kindness factory out of tragedy that is helping so many other people. How do you feel about that? Uh Look, so proud. I mean, it started with me doing one thing for one person, so one small act, which is our, I guess, ethos or philosophy. And at that moment, I had no idea that it would change the course of the rest of my life and and bring so much positivity to everyone around the world, which has been phenomenal. I forget about it sometimes. It just sort of sits (laughs) in the background and people keep doing it, but so proud. And in some ways, I think it's an incredible legacy of Jim's as well. He was a very kind and empathetic and and soft person as well underneath the tough exterior of, of, you know, having a footy kind of facade and things like that but I mean it was purely an accident Gussie I I didn't really intend for it to be what it got to or anything like that it was just me recognized that I'd receive recognizing that I received a lot of kindness in my struggle and I think we mentioned that earlier on you know when you're in a wheelchair like I have been you can't reach a lift button and a random stranger walks past and they see that struggle and they press that button and it means nothing to their day but everything to yours those moments matter so much so I encourage everyone to consider that the next time they see an opportunity to be kind but I was inspired by that. So I started doing things for other people and then, yeah, very accidentally got quite catchy and everyone else wanted to become a part of it as well. But, you know, the the hurdle amongst that, which really amplified this message of kindness was another story, but essentially, you know, landing myself in hospital again and not being able to commit acts of kindness, which I was, I guess people recognised that I couldn't do it any longer. They were inspired and they went into action themselves. And that's how the movement truly formed, I guess, is that people maybe felt empathy again for me through another struggle or a period of struggle. And they went, I, I can be kind. If she can endure that, I the, the least I could do is go and mow my neighbour's lawn, if that's all she's asking. And so it's been such a beautiful movement to be a part of and, and one that I'm immensely proud of, for sure. Yeah, because of a lack of time, we'll just forget about the other time you were knocked yeah, off your yeah. bike and yeah. broke your back for a second time. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks ago where someone else, you know, knocked you off a bike as well. <laughs> so, But there's so many of those moments where you just – Take a big deep breath and you just get on. And kindness is what you're all about and telling your story. I'd love you to tell our listeners about some of the speaking engagements that you've done, one in particular, which I just think is just hilarious and it sums you up so well. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so very accidentally you know, fell into speaking. And I say accidentally, I actually failed my year 12 English oral exam. And you've got a potty mouth. I'm so proud of you. You haven't sworn yet today. Thank you. It's not over yet. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, very, I guess just because I've got a unique story and, and people like hearing it, fell into motivational speaking. And I say it like that because it's just like this, but to in front of you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. And I got a call in 2017, I think it was. It was an American accent. She said, look, uh, we'd love you to come and open our event conference. I said, oh, yeah, that'd that'd be great. Where are you based? Thinking it was locally in Australia. She might have just been working here. She said, it's in Ojai in California. And I said, oh, okay. And I'd never really done an international speaking event. And I said, what's it called? And she said, I'm sure you've heard of us. We're called PATOW. So it's an acronym, P-W-T-O-W. And I said, oh, I said, look, part of my ignorance, I don't watch much TV. I haven't. What's it about? She said, look, we bring together the world's most powerful and influential people and brands. And the more she went on, I was like, this sounds like a cult. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about this. And anyway, we were toing and froing, phone calls, emails, all that. She said, look, we'll fly you and your assistant. Didn't have one of those. So So all your best um, mates putting their hand up. I'm your assistant. Yeah, she's like, business class, the works. So yeah, I ring my best mate and I'm like, oi, ice hockey, like NBA, like get the speaking engagement we'll get there we'll watch all these it'll be great like come and she's like of course so there we are like you know said agreed to it and she basically said to me from a briefing standpoint look you'll open the whole thing 
you got eight minutes to share your story. And I'm like, how do I, we can't even fit in an hour in a podcast. So how do I get it down to eight minutes, the story? I said, look, could I, it's a big story. Can I have 15 minutes? And she said to me, look, the Dalai Lama only gets 12. So no, eight. And I was like, and I thought she was kidding. So I was like, okay, like eight, eight minutes, fine. So I practiced a little bit and all that kind of stuff and go through the, the gates, all that kind of stuff, get to this conference. And the day before it, I had to arrive for a sound check and do all that kind of stuff as you do in your hotel and whatever. And I should have started to add a few pieces together at <laughs> this moment because I get there and the screens are bigger than like, you know, a castle. Like and you're local, more than your local RSL. Bigger, like just huge. Like I look like an ant and I start doing this sound check and I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And there's like 4,000 seats in front of me. And I was like, wow, this is a pretty big deal. Go to bed, get up, ready to go. And I get into the green room out the back, waters and all that kind of stuff. And there's this woman sitting there and I said, oh, g'day. She said, hello. I said, I'm Kath. And she said, I'm Michelle. We shook hands. And I said, oh, it's really nice to meet you. And I, in my head, I was like, she looks really familiar. <laughs> and she said, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing back here? I said, I'm, I'm opening the whole event. She said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, oh, a bit of my life and kindness, really. She just sounds really wonderful. Kindness is one of my most favourite things. And I said, oh, awesome. I said, what are you going to talk about? She said, I'm on after you. I'm going to talk about the Me Too movement. I said, oh, I've heard of that. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be great. She said, she sort of got this like perplexed look on her face and she said, I'm going to watch you. So just excuse me, I'm going to go out the front and I'll, and I said, yeah, well, when I'm done, I'll watch you too. Like it'd be great. <laughs> um, We're <your> best mates. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes away and then I, you know, started to get into the sort of headspace of this thing. It's like 20 minutes away and blah, blah, blah. They welcome me out onto stage and I'm out there and I'm two minutes into the eight. Everything's going great. Haven't sworn yet. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> I look off centre to the right and I see this woman front row, like, just off to the right, and then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Next to her is her husband, Barack Obama. <laughs> it was Michelle Obama I'm chatting to in, in the green room, and I was like, what? <laughs> so then I start to get really nervous. I nearly did, I think I did swear. I look to the left, it is the Dalai Lama. It's like the red and yellow sort of robes and stuff. Uh, all these people in the audience, like Reese Witherspoon and just anyone that was anyone was in this room. I get this standing ovation, and I get out the back, I think like – the sweat was dripping off me at this moment. I'm like, what on earth has just happened? Um, yeah. So then I did. I went and watched her talk about the Me Too movement. It was great. Was she good, by learned, the way? Learned a lot, yeah. Did she go all right? Me, did yep. she get eight minutes or a bit more? She got less, I think. Oh. Like seven, so there you go. <laughs> no, the briefing I got was all, almost like, no one will have heard of you, which is great. These guys have got everything I could ever need. Just give them some humility, like humble the pants off this crew. And, and I think I fit the brief, which was great. But yeah, it sort of changed, I guess, the course of Kindness Factory as a movement because I think we're at like 150,000 acts of kindness, which was great. It was a great achievement, long way from zero. And yeah, like almost overnight, it then blew up. So I had all these heads of companies like Warner Media and AT&T and all that kind of stuff going, we'll break your website. Just hang on, like, let's get some infrastructure in place and then we'll help you on your mission. So yeah, really funny story. So that was, yeah, that was that was I love that, that story. I love that story. One. Yeah. It still makes me giggle. Doesn't someone in America want to do a movie about you or <laughs> like, you know, like you've yeah. got some real good yeah. backers in America because America for the kindness factory and Australia yep. are two of the biggest ones. They're nearly as, as big as each other, are they? Well, yeah, I guess the, from a not-for-profit standpoint in terms of what Kindness Factory is and what it can be and all that kind of stuff, back then I really had no idea. Like, I, I mean, I remember sitting in a hospital bed going, I want to hit a million acts of kindness. I thought it was unreachable, huge number. And that's still where I was at that conference. And then the more people I spoke to and things like that, they were like, Kath, this is 
really inspiring movement and it makes so much sense like the world needs more kindness so let us help you so yeah all sorts of offers have have come to to the party so we've got some big backers in in warner over in in the u.s which is they've been really patient with us which has been a really wonderful thing to see because i mean it's arguably the world's biggest company i think aren't they or something like right that. up there yeah. Yeah. yeah but they haven't gone here's a truckload of money just fix it, fix the problem that you see in front of you. They've sort of come on the journey with us and they advise and do things like that. So that's been wonderful. I dare say if COVID hadn't have happened and for personal reasons I stayed on here in Australia rather than the US, I was sort of living there. It would be a little bit differently, but what COVID's allowed us to do is, I guess, get quite structured. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was traveling the world as this motivational speaker and I sort of had that scratch your head moment where you've got to really reevaluate who you are and what you're doing from a values perspective. And I landed myself in New York and ended up speaking to one person. So it's this really senior executive at a very big company and they'd flown me there spent all sorts of money to get me there, business class, all this kind of stuff. And I thought it was for a complete event and it was just essentially a meeting where I'd spoke to this man and told him my story and you know I got paid and all that kind of stuff which was fine but I was like this isn't why I quit my job or pursued this it was to see kindness so I really had that stern word to myself and said well what's this all about and so I said well look for every I made a deal with myself almost for every corporate event that I go to that will help me put dinner on the table and pay my bills and electricity and stuff like that I'll do a school talk for free and I just want to learn about kids and all that kind of stuff and um, and I learned a lot in those environments I go in and share my story and a couple of things happened teachers would almost chase me into the car park and go oh my god you've just created this great legacy how do we as educators continue what you've just started with these kids and I, I didn't really have anything to sort of help them to sort of push the movement forward within that ecosystem but also and I know that you're very across this information but like I'd get these very reactive phone calls from teachers going look we've just lost a student to suicide could you come in and share your story or do this and I was like why on earth is it taking the loss of anyone for you to pick up the phone and, and make something happen be it through gotcha for life or whoever it is get in front like, of the curve just get it one is too many you know zero suicides is the goal so how on earth is this happening and why are we letting it happen and so I was like how do we as a movement become part of the problem so that not only do we help stop that statistic and lower those instances of suicide. And so for us to be able to create those safe and nurturing environments is really important for me. And I guess, so from that standpoint, that was great to be able to contribute in that space, but also you can't argue with kindness. So we want to see as much of it as possible. I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall, getting in front of adults and sharing that message. Why not get in front of kids as young or early as possible through curriculum activities and things like that? And hopefully we see a generational change or shift in, in behaviour and obviously more kindness. So we've reduced the kindness curriculum in partnership with Kaplan, who are education providers, and very kindly they've given us all those resources and activities and things like that, which go into schools. It's completely free, so no, no one's trying to make money out of it or anything like that. We just want to see more kindness. And so COVID allowed me to get really focused on that element of Kindness Factory and the foundation's laid. It's now in 3,000 schools as a Friday, so... Huge achievement, but there's probably like 9,000 to go before we get every school in Australia and we're about to start that in the US and, and so forth. So, yeah, it's been phenomenal. And, yeah, a lot of the, the, the people in the States are sort of helping with that next iteration, have to, had to localise the content so that it's not so Australian-focused and has Australian colloquialisms and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been a really cool journey so far. Oh, fantastic. And the fact that you're just inspirational, Kath, and I know that you're – hear that a lot but you truly are like to be what you've been through and come out the other side and want to help so many people and now like you say 
with the kindness factory you're touching everyone in different continents so you should be so proud of yourself and very proud to have you as an ambassador for gotcha and also as a friend there is so much stuff that we could talk about but i do need to sort of wind this up the quick five chance for you to sit back and relax a little bit yeah what is your favorite holiday destination kath holiday finley back home Okay. <laughs> and what's in Finlay that is just your favourite holiday? Not New York, not London, not Paris? Colour TV, that's what, what's there. <laughs> the Hotel Motel still has av- advertising that we have colour TV here. That's why I love going back. It's good for the soul. Like, not much going on. <laughs> I love that. They've still got it up there? Is still, it? yeah. Yeah, my brother and I were there in April and we, you know, it's not Wi-Fi or anything like that. We have colour TV. So, no, it's because, you know, it's where I'm... I'm from the Finley Lake is there. Your mobile phone doesn't work. You can't be bothered by anyone and you just, you know, it's just really great people. Yeah. And good country values. Beautiful. I love that. What about your favourite quote? Have you got one of those that you live by? Yeah. The world is changed by your example, not by your opinion. So action just means to me action. Yeah. I love that. Favourite movie? Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Favourite book? Are you a reader? Favourite book by a very dear friend of mine, Eddie Jacou, Happiest oh, Man on Earth. What a man. What a man, yeah. How did you meet him? Through speaking, so all that kind of stuff. And last year he headed up our World Kindness Day campaign as well. Obviously he's a big advocate of, of kindness, so yeah. But such a difficult read in terms of the content and everything that man went through, but so beautiful in how he, I guess, or what he saw throughout that struggle, I think is an example for everyone. And I think it should be on in every school's curriculum and everyone, wherever they are, should should grab a copy of that book. It, it can teach you so many valuable life lessons for sure. Beautiful, Kath. And your favourite charity, who would you like to give the $10,000 to <laughs> today? I think we, we split it between the factory and, and Gotcha, for sure. That's that, how, well, how it works. If I ever get an opportunity to do the same, that's exactly <laughs> what I would do, Kath. So that's very, very kind. And something, if someone is looking to uh, support you, what does $5,000 do for you when that hits your account? Like, what does that allow you to, to do? At Kindness Factory, yeah. it'll go straight to the curriculum. So we're actually building out a Kind Schools network, which will launch in February next year so as I said the curriculum is completely free to you know sustain and give that maintenance and enhance that it takes valuable contribution from Kaplan which is pro bono which is hugely generous it's in the millions I think their contribution to the movement now in terms of a five thousand dollar contribution what that will do for the kind schools network is it'll allow you know masterclasses CPD courses for teachers that will be able to sort of get in and do that SEL the social and emotional learning for their kids and so forth so that network I think hopefully I mean the strategy is more about connecting kids all around the world in their school environment. So as we build out the curriculum in different countries and nations, kids will be able to connect through the common theme of kindness eventually, which is wonderful. So yeah, watch your space in, in that sense, but it'll be huge. $5,000 will mean a, a huge amount to that. And I know for gotcha programs as well, knowing all the things that I do, if I wasn't running a, a kindness movement or the movement that I am, I'd be doing something or a lot more for gotcha, put it that way, is, is never a no in my mind for anything gotcha related I um thank you yeah just love what you're doing and um and the impact that you've had and how special you are to to not only me personally Gussie but anywhere I go and someone knows that I know you they ask me what you like and one of my favorite things to do is to actually tell them you know who you are and what makes you you and and how much I adore you so thank you for being part of my life and for having me as well (laughs) (laughs) thanks for spending some time with us today you're Dead set legend, mate. Thank you. Yeah, of course.
Well, that was Kath Cashel. What I adore about Kath is the fact that no matter what was thrown at her, she kept on getting up and she kept that focus of kindness, trying to help other people. She truly is an amazing person. Coming up next on Not An Overnight Success is Stan Grant. Stan is an international affairs editor for the ABC, a multi-award winning current affairs host, author and adventurer. Stan has covered just about any important political story you can imagine from natural disasters to terrorist attacks, wars and all kinds of things in the political space. He came from humble beginnings and he claims that it's luck that got him to where he is, but I think you'll also find that it's hard work, tenacity, and the fact that he is brilliant. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.